everybody. You're very welcome to the Open Training College podcast series. My name is Neve McAvoy and today I am joined by Anthony Miles from Taurus Training and Anthony is going to give us a very good insight into Taurus and into working in the addiction services in general. to just maybe tell our listeners a little bit about you and your service and how you came to work in this particular service. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, my name is Anthony Miles. Uh, I work as um, uh, education and training um, coordinator for a project called uh, Tourist Training. It's located in um, Bluebell in Dublin. Um, it's a, an addiction services uh, service provider and um, how I got into uh, this line of work was uh, about 10 years ago, I decided I needed some um, upskilling in, in um, you know, the, the, the experience. I had read quite a bit around uh, addiction services, but I hadn't any experience of dealing with people in that kind of a format, in a, in a structured um, service provider format. So I decided to uh, apply for a position uh, with Taurus Training with the intention of staying for two years. Ten years later, I'm still there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason for that primarily is down to the clients that I work with and the satisfaction that I get from working with those clients in the area of uh, education and training. Just to, let, just to tell you a little bit about Taurus Training in, in, uh, that's located in Bluebell. It's part of the Canals Communities um, uh, task force service provision to people suffering from addiction but we don't just take people from the canal communities we take them from all over um, <laughs> from all over Dublin mainly um, it has 50 places um, 35 of which are um, described as t-code and t-code being the, the code that the um, serv- uh, the funders use to well one of the funders use to um, categorize the service user 35 of them are for what we would call uh, clients are, are people that would be primarily on methadone programs um, they're stabilized drug users um, we don't enforce that too rigidly because of the challenge it face the, the challenge that the, the, um, that the, the service users face so 35 of them are on what we call a day program and the day program consists of the uh, participants coming to the center every day, five four days a week. And they have the option to come five days if they wish, but the, the fifth day is kind of voluntary for activities that the, that they like engaging in. Um, Taurus is a four pillar, it's a four pillar program. Um, it has uh, rehabilitation uh, as one of its core pillars, education and training, um, outdoor education and holistics. So if you think about those four areas, you're addressing the, the need for rehabilitation, you're addressing the need for um, knowledge information and vocational education in uh, education and training, um, physical well-being through the uh, outdoor activity. Every uh, participant goes out once a week, at least once a week, uh, unless they have um, a medical certificate or a medical um, reason not to go, uh, which is very rare because they love going out. And um, it's, you know, physical, <laughs> it's physical. Uh, so it means it's it's not overburdening, but there is a, a bit of physicality to it. It's to get their, um, you know, physical ability and fitness up because all of their 
all of their uh, systems have been depleted as a result of drug use. And of course, the, the last one then being the holistic pillar, and I, I'm not putting them in order of preference. Obviously, rehabilitation is a, is a highly important pillar. But, um, you know, looking after a person's mind is equally as important as looking after their, their physical well-being. So um, they, they are exposed to all of those uh, activities throughout the week. The ETB, the Dublin City ETB, provide services to the uh, centre in the form of educational programmes and uh, IT programmes and that sort of thing. And uh, we also have um, um, we have an allotment uh, that we go to up in the Dublin mountains with the air is so fresh, it's brilliant. And uh, they love engaging with that as well because it gets them out and they're growing things and they're bringing them back to the centre and they're using them for different uh, therapies and holistics and food in the kitchen and uh, what have you. So it's it's yeah it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty interesting program to be involved in. And most of the uh, participants that participate in that uh, love the program. Absolutely love it. Excellent. And what sort of um, demographics are the people in? What would be the age range? How might they come to the end of service? Okay. Well, most of them come to the service through referrals. Um, Referrals either people that are already in the centre or their GP or um, the, the Department of Social Protection or the HSC. There are all of these um, options for people to access these services if they really want to. Uh, so they are there and uh, um, those referrals, um, obviously, in order for them to officially join the program they have to go through a process of um, a process to ensure that they qualify uh, and what i what i mean by qualify is it's an addiction services program so they they have to have struggled with addiction for a number of years they also have to have been on the live register for i think it's at least a year yeah it is at least a year in order to qualify for the the um it's a community empowerment program it's it's set up under that structure so they're part of the uh, community employment program that that is addressing a specific need to a specific cohort and that being um, addiction services i think it was the fianna fall party that decided that this was the the most appropriate structure to um, offer these services under uh, it's also in the in the um, drug strategy you know that, that it's recognized in the drug strategy as a means of of uh, helping people with both alcohol and uh, drug addiction. So yeah, it, it, it forms an integral part of the uh, the drug strategy uh, policy in, in the state. Does that strategy work, do you think? Is it the best way to offer those services? You know, the key thing, Nev, that has changed the, the uh, emphasis in these services, uh, I, I when I joined at first, I didn't think it was very effective. In fact, I thought it was more about well, I won't say what I thought it was more about, but it, I just didn't think it was very effective. Um, now, because of the policy of the HSC, throughout all care services, to make it person-centred. It's absolutely crucial. And uh, the fact that it is now person-centred and uh, that the person is driving their own recovery or um, upskilling or um, fitness levels or mental well-being, you're you're actually addressing the need of the person, what they feel they want, and what they and it's it's excellent now. It's absolutely excellent now. It's so much better than it used to be, and that's backed up by statistics in terms of the number of people that stay with a program and, as we call it, positively progress from the program. Um, people could always 
leave the program at any time. They could always progress from the program. It could be a negative progression, which means that they haven't met any improvements in their lives. They're back. They, they, a negative, a negative progression is in fact a relapse in most cases when it comes to addiction. Positive progression is that they go on to further education or employment or part-time employment, any improvement at all in their lives prior or, you know, as opposed to the way they entered the service is considered a positive progression. Yeah, and I think the fact that you're, you're a more person-centered approach now, you, you can't go wrong really with being person-centered. Well, sometimes you can pre pretend to be personal, uh, person-centered. And uh, I'm not saying Taurus ever was that because it wasn't. It's a it's brilliantly run project. Uh, and just to answer the question in case I forget it, the cohort would range from 18 to about 55. Uh, once somebody uh, reaches, I, I can't remember how, yeah, we probably did have people you actually, you know, we do, we do have people up to retirement age 66 because, uh, <laughs> but most of them wouldn't be, I've never encountered them uh, struggling with addiction. They would be more um, working in the service as, as support workers, um, providing maybe administration or reception or kitchen or cleaning or you know any of those kind of services and that and they're all reserved for that cohort of people so the 50 places are filled by people who need that support uh, in whatever guise it takes so they would be people who would have previously had an addiction struggled with addiction would they Yes, and in, in rarely, but in some cases, might still be struggling with addiction, might still be, um, you know, uh, <laughs> say, for instance, if, if they were a cleaner, um, uh, they might still have, um, they might still be on methadone, for instance, yeah. or, or they might still be on some kind of treatment for a previous um, vice or addiction of some nature. But for the most part, people when they get to that stage of their lives, they have, as one of the, as one of our, our staff used to say, they have suffered enough to realize that, uh, you know, that they need to change their lifestyle, or perhaps, you know, they they, they won't see many more years. But uh, you know, we 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 uh, yeah, we we would have um, from time to time people up as far as retirement age. And the the reason that resonates with me right now is because recently we celebrated somebody finishing up with the service that was uh, retirement age. That's why I remembered it. Yeah. Yeah. And would, there, there's a number of uh, key issues that our students would be looking at in this particular module, which is social sure. studies. So if we maybe look at some of those. So the first one that I have, and these are in no particular order, really, sure. or anything, but poverty. Would poverty be something that the guys you would work with would experience either before they come to the service while they're in the service or even when they progress from the service, is poverty a, a, an issue and how might it be experienced? Are you talking about financial poverty? Financial poverty, yeah. Financial poverty, absolutely. Because, yeah, well I mean we would look at we would look at um, we would look at capital, you know, human capital and and uh, you know uh, and <laughs> assess people on, on on that basis. You know, and financial poverty is definitely an issue. Now, having said that, you know, a lot of people would come into the service suffering greatly with financial poverty, usually of their own making as a result of their addiction yeah. and would be under an awful lot of pressure as a result of that from, from any number of 
for any number of reasons. But you can imagine the type of thing now, if you have a, uh, a drug death or if you have, you know, if you have a family and you're trying to look after a family on welfare payments and you have an addiction and so on and so forth, well, that can lead to extremes of poverty and, uh, and you know, uh, financial poverty is definitely um, a, a major issue. Once they join the service and they have, they're appointed a key worker or support worker, that key worker's job is to help them address all of those issues. Um, we would have close links with MABs. We would have close links with all of the service providers to help somebody overcome any of the issues that they might be dealing with. And um, we don't try to solve every problem for, for, the, uh, for the service users. We, you know, we use our, our networks and our links to, to address whatever um, issues need addressing. But we only do it if the service user is of a mind to do it, if you know what I mean, if they're in the, in the, in the right headspace to do it. We won't tell them to go to MAPS. We won't tell them to do anything. What we'll do is we'll suggest to them that there's this option if they're ready to avail of it, because there is a there is a cost and there's a there's an expectation if you join if you link up with any of these network supports that you're committed to doing it, you're committed to getting it right. You have to meet all of the commitments that you make. And if we if we try to make those commitments on behalf of the service user, that's not going to work. It never does work. And as a result, we don't do it. So so we might we might suggest a service like Maps. But the service user has to decide that they're ready to 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 engage with maps and do whatever is required or recommended <laughs> by maps in order to solve whatever issue financial issue they might be having at any given time it's actually empowering the person really isn't it it sure is it, it absolutely is and sometimes there is huge resistance to that when people come in first they expect you to have the answers what sort of the services they you you're like to sure you I can do that myself, you know, I can decide that myself. And so great, you can decide that yourself. And if you're ready, we're here to support you and help you in doing that. But we're not going to do it for you. And we're not going now there are times of course if somebody is in a um and it's rarely we would come across them in, in a chaotic state. But if they relapse, we don't abandon them. We you know we, we try to support them as much as we can. And if that means making an intervention on their behalf, well, then we will. But the key worker will make that decision themselves. Um, it's 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 hugely um, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but kind of steeped in motivational interview and positive regard, empowerment, all of that sort of stuff. You know, it's not it's not about us solving problems for them. It's them deciding that they're ready to solve their own problems with the support and help of of the project and the network that the project has access to. Yeah, I think that thing of, of the person being ready to do mm. it is mm. really important. You know, I suppose there'd be, probably would there be an element of fear, I suppose, for, for the different individuals of yeah. looking for help, that maybe this is something they've never done before, and there's a there's a fear factor, it's stepping into the unknown. That Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But I mean, the question that triggers the response is, you know, um, from a motivational interview and point of view is asking them open questions about their, uh, mainly around their readiness and they 
reflecting on what they've done in the past and do they want to continue on that route or you know are they here just for the money or for the the, the welfare benefits that comes with joining a project because i think you get 20 quid extra over your your um unemployment benefits or something like that are you here just for the 20 quid or are you actually here to address the issues that have caused your health to deteriorate your mental health to deteriorate your you know your family to suffer your you know and and, and these are these are honest statements that are put in front of people and a, a lot of it is very very structured through um through um, structured uh, forms and things like that that they engage with and they're expected to, uh, uh, you know, look at the question, reflect on it, answer it honestly, and, and then, you know, put a plan in place to, to address any, any outstanding. It's very, very structured. The program is very, very structured. So um, all the key workers operate to a system that, that we know works. Right. Yeah. Um, would social exclusion be an issue. I would imagine before they come to the service, social exclusion probably would be an issue. Does it occur or happen for the guys during their time with you and maybe when they're moving on to further education or employment opportunities? And I suppose with that you could also think about marginalisation. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. It is definitely an issue. I mean, addiction affects people, both their behaviour and the way they present. And um, Many years of addiction causes people to speak in a certain way, causes them to act in a certain way, causes them to present in a certain way, and it it's um, it's readily recognisable, and particularly with the police, with the guards who use profiling to to address uh, social issues, and uh, more often than not, our our service users will talk to us about resentfully about how the guards treat them and how they are stopped for no reason and searched for no reason. And that's one of the things that we try to address with them right off the bat is that, that you know, how we, we ask them how they react to that situation. What, what way do they react? How does it pan out? You know, what way does it end up? Are they, uh, are they free to go after the search or are they arrested or what? And, you know, of course, you get a variety of answers. But when they come in first, it's a it's a major issue. There's a lot of resentment. There's sometimes even a reluctance to talk about it because they don't know whether they can trust you or not at that stage. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, marginal uh, marginalization and social exclusion is a huge issue for for people suffering with addiction. If you think about anybody, a heroin user, an alcoholic, the the, the obvious ones, you know, poly drug use. Um, those people are so so obvious. If you walk down the street and you see a few of them, you you you, you will know almost immediately. So uh, and, and likewise the guards and likewise business owners, you know, who don't want them outside their shop or coming into their shop. So yeah, it's 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 a huge thing. Probably probably as bad, if not worse, as the travel community. And does it have um, does it have a big impact then on the guys moving on to further? Uh, employment opportunities or getting work experience does it impact on that I would imagine that it does to it does it does it does to some degree it depends on the effectiveness of the of the process that they've they've gone through and how much they buy into it because all of this is is highlighted to them you know we 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 we, we tell them about the the negative impact of how they 
behave and how they act, the decisions they're taking, how they choose to present. One of the most interesting things is actually the way they present, because I don't think many of them change the way they present in terms of, you know, if you look, if you think about a typical drug user and how, how they dress and how they present, um, they're reluctant to change that because changing that moves them away from their social circle. Do you know what I mean? And it kind of it kind of makes them stand out. Now, it's different if they've progressed to a point where they understand all of that, and when they're not working, they present in the way they always have presented. A lot of them are, are actually anxious to move away from people that they see as a bad influence on them, as somebody who drags them back to where they were previously, especially if they've worked really hard to move away from that type of behavior and that type of uh, um the way you know how they conduct themselves overall because they they almost immediately recognize the improvements both in their health and their mental well-being in their family life and their friends and you know um sometimes it takes them to hit rock bottom before they actually get to a stage where they re-engage with their family interestingly with COVID, a lot of people ended up you know <laughs> going back to their family for support and because of the nature of the the crisis you know families kind of embrace them and give them the, you know, I remember talking to, to one of our, our service users recently and he said, I have a whole new relationship with my parents now because of what's happened. So it's kind of worked out well for him, but, you know, that's a whole, one in a hundred year event, we, we hope, you know, so you wouldn't want, yeah, you wouldn't want to be relying on that kind of, um, um, you know, intervention to help people. But do you know what I mean? It's like, um, yeah, it's it's just there's a myriad of things that 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 causes them to to um, you know to 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 struggle with yeah. the challenges. But I mean, they're amazing people. They're so resilient, and they're the the you know the fact that they, they that they I would hate to face the challenges that some of them face. I I, I think it would destroy me. Uh, you know, I I have nothing but admiration for them. The way that they're able to overcome it trust people you know take on board what's being suggested to them it's a, a whole new way of living your life you know sometimes what we're encouraging them to do and uh, there's so many things that they're suspicious of and skeptical about um, for you to get somebody to to change the way they think and change the way they behave it's a huge huge trust on their part it's a considerable amount on that a lot of the individuals would have to climb isn't it absolutely absolutely would inequality and discrimination be something now that would be an ongoing issue for the, the cohort that you would work with? Again, even before they come into the service, I imagine it would be. But while they're in the service and when they're, they're progressing on to the next step, would they still experience inequality and discrimination? They do. They do. Undoubtedly, they do. And, uh, I mean, you hear about it. We do a lot of surveys with them to see, you know, what degree of in, uh, change is happening in their lives with the changes that they uh, affect in their in their in the way that they uh, behave or the way they think or the way, their attitudes or whatever, and um, you know it's it's difficult to overcome that. You know if you get a reputation for being for behaving in a certain way, maybe among your own circle of friends that's fine because everybody else behaves that way as well. But once you step outside that that kind of cohort, well then you. You know, you're into a whole different ballgame. You can imagine trying to convince an employer of the merits of hiring somebody with, with a history of drug addiction. You know, it's hard enough to get somebody that you can rely on and trust and, 
to do to do any piece of work but but having that kind of baggage as well is a huge you know if somebody if somebody has the choice not to take them well they probably will not take them so that's inequality you know that's making them pay probably again in society for something that they have already paid for in terms of you know being held accountable by the law or whatever you know so it, and that's one of the things that that is such an obstacle to overcome with them the belief that they will not get a fair crack at a quit because of their history and because of the mistakes they've made and because of their you know them a lot of them might have spent some time in prison or whatever and and they just don't believe that, that uh, there's people in society that will forgive them that but the reality is that there are and you know there there, there are opportunities out there for them and you know our, our progression rate into employment is, is incredible our progression rate into um, educate uh, further education is incredible I mean you know, this is this is this is kind of off the record a little bit, but the expectation from projects of the nature of ours, which is like, you know, addiction services, if you can achieve a 10% progression rate, positive progression rate, you've done really well. Um, we would achieve a 10% progression rate in employment. We would achieve a 10% progression rate and sometimes higher in further education. Uh, we would achieve a 10% progression rate in uh, progressing to um, part-time employment are a better situation than they were in prior to coming in. So our, our progression, positive progression rate would be up around 30-35%, which is way beyond the expectation. I know that, and I think the expectation is reasonable. I think exact that's the right way to have the expectation fixed at that level, because anything higher is too much pressure. It's too long a journey for somebody. You know, the, the, the most used people usually get is, is four years. So you think about it. If you spend the first two years trying to address their rehabilitation issue, well, now you can, you, you're you lucky if you have two years to move them forward in their education or training. And a lot of them would have basic, very basic uh, education. Most would now might have junior cert. When I joined the service first, very few would have had junior cert. Uh, now you might get the other one that had done some of their legal cert applied uh, and some may have junior cert, but that's what the ETB address. They address, um, they offer um, uh, education programs in, in um, at junior cert level and uh, at um, leaving cert level. Okay. So the progression routes within the within the centre now, if you come in with a level two, a QQI level two, or even a level three, which the and I'm talking about a major award at level three, that would be the equivalent to your junior cert. You can progress to level four major award, level five major award, level six um, component award or special purpose award and level seven certificate. And and the, 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 the funders will actually fund that progression pathway for people in community employment, which is excellent. Excellent, yeah, and it brings us on to our next topic, which is empowerment. Yeah. So I would imagine that that would have a really good impact on the empowerment of this particular cohort. It's transformational. It's absolutely transformational because if you consider somebody coming into a project with the effects of addiction, with all of the effects of addiction, and the toll, the toll that that takes on their self-esteem, their confidence, their, nobody wants, I don't think anybody in their right mind wants to end up an addict to any substance, no? So this is a disease. They have no choice when it comes to this stuff. 
I don't know whether you, you know, I, I've never had any kind of a craving for anything. You know, I know I, I'm, you know, I, I might drink the odd pint of Guinness. I can't even do that anymore now because I'm celiac. But, you know, I look forward to a pint of Guinness. Um, but I've never had a real craving for anything. So I can't well, imagine. <laughs> not even, not even chocolate. No, not even chocolate. Uh, I'm, I'm very disciplined. Very disciplined yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, sometimes I wonder. But, but that craving, that drive to actually address some kind of a, you know, a, a, a need, a basic, you know, need, a driver that's driving them to, it's it's beyond their control. It's absolutely it's beyond. It's a disease, and they have no control over it. And and, and the reality is that that that. Um, you know they try to they try to manage that the best they can. You know, and um, there's so many things out there. You know, I mean, the, uh, a lot of a lot of people who who suffer with addiction and get it under control through, with say, methadone treatments, believe that they that they are. Some of them believe that they're that they're exploited through that methadone treatment program. Some of them would refer to it as the green dragon. Some of them would refer to it as as. Uh, um, structural drug supply, if you know what I mean, or structural drug intervention. You know, you you move from heroin to uh, methadone, and you're now in receipt of methadone through the state. Some of them refer to the state as being the biggest drug pusher. You know, but that's their view of it. You know, the way they see it, because they believe that they're ready to to move on, and they're in a hurry to move on. Whereas their GP might be telling them, look. We're going to reduce this very slowly because your body can adjust to it more more appropriately in that way. They believe that they're ready. They believe that. Now, I don't know whether a GP operates on the same basis as we do, because if somebody tells us that they're ready, we'll trial that. We'll, we'll, we'll experiment with that and we'll see if they are ready. And you can, if you can prove to us that, that you're ready, then do it. Then do it. Like it's, it's less important. We'll say not as important for the type of things that we do with them. You know, it might be taken on a course, or it might be taken on an extra little bit of physical activity, or whatever. Um, obviously, when it comes to prescribed drugs and, and medicine, it's a much more serious issue. And the GP, you have to trust the GP, and we would always suggest that they speak with their GP about it. But that doesn't change the reality that they sometimes view it like that. You know, they view it as as um, the state being the biggest drug pusher of all. An interesting perspective. Yeah, indeed. Um, you know, they refer to it as the green dragon. The green dragon is something like that. Methadone is obviously green. I, 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 you know, I don't go looking at the methadone to see what color it is. But um, when they when they uh, drink it, um, you know, it it, it, it is it, it, it's a heroin substitute. So um, uh, you know, they 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 become addicted to that just as as easily as they are to uh, heroin. Yeah. Um, would you find we'll we'll move on to the next topic of rights. Sure. Is rights something that the guys you would work with is do they experience their rights? I suppose is the way. Would they be aware of them before they come to the service? I I'm sure once they get to you guys, that rights would be something that would be looked at. But yeah, is, is rights something that is an issue before they come to the service or when they progress? I'd say the vast majority of them would not be aware of their rights. You get the odd few that um, that obviously would, and they're 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 you know they're they're at a different stage in their lives, or they're a little bit older, or they might have greater awareness, or whatever. Um, but definitely, yeah, that there is a there is um, 
there's a, a, a the vast majority of them would not be aware of their rights or their entitlements or, 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 or you know for, for for example in my in my area my pillar uh, the education and training there's a huge amount of grants and uh, supports out there to help them because it's much better for for somebody if you can if you can help them to get educated or get trained up in something and and you you move on from a service like ours as a as a positive progression and you're no longer drawn down social welfare benefits that investment that earlier investment in a training program or a vocational program or an educational program that helped them achieve that is a good investment but they wouldn't have very much awareness of that and they wouldn't have very much awareness of of what they're entitled to go looking for not alone get so so the key workers would do a huge amount of work on that with them and um once they become more aware of it, um, you know, there's certain there's certain bursaries that we have links with and things like that that we would tap into. Uh, now they they have to go and do it. We we don't do it for them. They have to go and actually make their case and go to the interview and prepare for all of that and uh, provide the evidence to support uh, whatever application they're making and whatever is being asked for. And uh, that's again it comes back to empowerment and helping them. So. The, the key workers don't do that kind of work for them, and uh, but they, they would be made aware of it. And of course, Thurs is a charity as well, so um, we would get a lot of uh, charitable supports that they can uh, access as well. Yeah, and would you say that maybe this lack of awareness of their rights and their entitlements might contribute to them ending up in addiction services in the first place? Absolutely, I would think so, yeah, without a doubt. Because, I mean, if you think about it, and I made reference to this earlier, a lot of them would be coming from a very low educational base and a very low level of understanding of how society works, not alone. You know, I mean, most of what they know, they know from seeing true example and not good example, you know. And uh, unfortunately, they mirror a lot of those mistakes or, uh, or, or poor examples and uh, and that causes them to end up in, you know, in situations that maybe had they more awareness, they, they, they might be less inclined to go that route. But I mean, we all hear about, um, you know, the, the influence of, of, um, of you know, in, in uh, socially disadvantaged areas, the way people aspire to certain things and the method in which they, they can get those, um, you know, Rolex watches or whatever, you know, uh, is sometimes questionable, you know, and uh, and if that's the only ch opportunity they have, and some of them might view it like that, that that's the only opportunity they have, you know, uh, it's difficult for them to see or to go seeking out the other things that might be available to them when they when they don't have any awareness of it, you know. When they come to a project like ours, you know, they 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 they, they do gain greater awareness of of would say the, the structural supports that are there to help them, the, the, the state supports that are there to help them. But that's a much more difficult option than the other ones that I referenced. Yeah. I suppose, you know, the phrase children learn what they live springs yeah. to mind. You know, Absolutely. The area and there's yeah. high crime and high addiction and drug and alcohol use. Exactly. They kind of naturally gravitate towards that. And if they're not aware of mm. the different supports that are out there, mm. um, you know, it's a very hard, I suppose, social trap to make your way out of. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, sometimes, 
you know, without the coping skills, you know, if you can blot out all your troubles with, with a substance, you know, and you sometimes wonder, why, you know, how any of them survive, really, you know, how, how they come through it, how resilient they are, it's incredible, it really is. Um, and would, would the guys that you work with, would their advocacy skills, I would imagine before they come to you, they probably wouldn't be very good at advocating for themselves, but is that something you guys would work on with them and that they would develop those skills through the programme? Yeah, I, if you were to ask most people coming into the centre what advocacy means, they wouldn't have a clue. They would not have a clue. If you were to ask them what empowerment means, they wouldn't have a clue. If you were to ask them what their self-esteem and confidence was like, they would be able to tell you pretty quickly once they once they trust you enough. Um, initially, if you were to come out with something like that, they'd probably tell you where to go. But, um, you know, most of that is a front, a survival front, if you like, um, you know, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a means of, of surviving in, in, in the world. And uh, but uh, you know they, they, they do reckon they wouldn't be in the project if they didn't recognise the toll it was taken on their lives. You know, so advocacy is something that we encourage. Uh, obviously, through the, through the, the means that the way that we work is all about empowering them and helping them to get to a point where, um, they can lobby and advocate. Uh, for themselves, most of them would not have a clue about um, politics, about uh, you know the role of a councillor, the role of a local representative, the the role you know what uh, voting. None of them would vote. None of them would even be registered to vote. You know, um, so that's empowering as well. And and you know once they realise that you know a local representative. They can actually go to a local, make an appointment, go and talk to somebody in their in their locality. And we encourage that all the time. We invite people in to, to talk to the groups about that. From We don't favour any political party, obviously, but, but we would invite local representatives from the variety of parties to come and talk to us. Some do and some don't. I can tell you which one is more likely to do it. If you're interested in hearing that, I have no problem telling you. But some of them choose to, and some of them don't, you know, and uh, and it's so uh, it's so so much of an awakening for them. Uh, first of all, that they they recognise they might recognise the person from TV or from politics or from debates and things like that, and uh, and then you know to have them standing in front of you talking to you about you know congratulating you on your educational award or making a presentation to you or whatever and. Um, in fairness, we, you know, nearly every year we would uh, invite the minister uh, with responsibility for uh, drug addiction or drug and alcohol addiction to come to our award ceremony, and nearly every year they would they would attend, no matter who, oh, who they, yeah, no matter which party they're from. Pardon? I imagine that's great for the guys. Like, oh, it's somebody that they see on television that yeah, they might perceive as being somebody important. Yeah. Absolutely. And and the thing about it is we would be saying to them, well now this is the minister for with responsibility for uh, addiction, drug and drug addiction and, and alcohol. Uh, and and go up and introduce yourself and, and you know, shake hands with her and meet her and speak with her and don't be you know, don't be overawed by it. And and it's just amazing transformation. Now obviously not when they're when they come into the centre first, but maybe a year or two years into being with the centre and they get a bit of confidence because they're getting awards and they're 
achieving and you know they're making progress across a range of areas in their lives uh, it, it, it's incredible to see it it's brilliant well, staff will have a huge role to play then obviously in, in all of this transformation for the individual yeah yeah there is the threshold level for uh, qualifications or accreditation that a, that a person has now by comparison with 10 years ago is is much higher it's much greater uh, it's not it's probably still not as high as it could be but most and most of the, the the staff that I work on, they all have degrees. They're all um, at degree level in their in their respective areas of, of uh, expertise. The outdoor education team, they're all um, they're, they all have um, uh, honours degrees. So, so does the rehabilitation team. So does the um, the holistic team. So yeah, I mean the the the, the level of um, ability that the staff have is 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 unquestionable, unquestionable, and also then. The amount of supports they get in terms of um, getting them to a point where they realize the culture of the organization and what the organization is about and uh, the expectation that that we would have in terms of how um, people are engaged with and uh, there's also a lot of training done around uh, trauma-informed care and an appreciation of, of, of that and of course the uh, techniques that are used then are referred to them earlier, like positive regard and, um, and motivational interviewing techniques. They all, they, when they're when they're used well, uh, they're they're very productive. You know, and the outcomes. What are. do um, particular types of training provided? Sorry, say that again. Is um, motivational interviewing and positive regard are those particular types of training provided once you join the yeah. service? Yeah. 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 So for any of our students listening who will come out with a social care degree, mm. they can get employment in addiction services and then receive that additional training. Yes, I, I would. Uh, yeah, it depends on the project, of course. I mean, I'm speaking about our project. Um, it's it's you know if it, there's um there's a PMDS system in operation in our project, which is performance management development system, and uh, you know you 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 do your you do your um annual appraisal and you set targets for yourself in terms of your personal and professional development and if you join the if you're part of the service and you you, you don't have um you don't have motivational interview skills or accreditation if you don't have positive regard awareness if you don't have informed um trauma-informed care awareness all of that stuff is there available for you to do along with all the other stuff that the manual handling training the first aid training you know the the typical kind of stuff you know so yeah yeah, yeah. the mandatory so, stuff. Uh, so for our students coming out in a few years with the social care degree mm. they don't need then to have any specific training or qualifications in addiction studies do they or would that be a benefit to have going into addiction services it's a benefit if you're coming into addiction services to have greater awareness around addiction addiction services the same as any other like homeless services or child care or, or elderly or any of them you know the more you know about the area of interest that you're that you're targeting as a as a, a, a source of employment to, to, you're in a much stronger position of course and if you have your degree um you know that that puts you in an even stronger position. Um, obviously, there's there all of these posts are advertised openly, and uh, you know there's an application process and a shortlisting and interview process and all of that. And so yeah. Yeah. Um. So there might be an influx of applications when our guys qualify. 
Am I selling it that well? I am. <laughs> it is. It is. It is an excellent. It is an excellent area to get into. I. I. I think it's been hugely uh, beneficial for me personally um, to work in that area. I have a much greater. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified going into that sector first. And when I say terrified, anxious, nervous, you know, fearful, fearful of the fact that the reputation that people with addiction have. It's all completely misplaced, completely. You know, I, I went into situations where I've never encountered any kind of physical violence. But from the outside, yes, people from the outside trying to, you know, maybe damage the centre or somebody in the centre that, that, you know, uh, that somebody outside of the centre became aware of their presence there and maybe trying to, but never, maybe trying to access them or whatever, but never internally the, i've never experienced the project being vandalized um by anybody internally um you know they they they, they really appreciate the, the service because it's their service that's the way they view it yeah yeah and so, I that, that perception that that's there and that pervades through time i i done a college placement in an addiction service many many moons ago it's like 20 odd years ago now at this stage mm -hmm. i was a little bit apprehensive but parents were a lot more apprehensive. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. Working in a, in a addiction treatment centre, and I was going to be there for, I think it was three or four months I'd done at that stage. Yeah. But I really, really did enjoy it. It was one of the best experiences I have ever had. It was yeah. really a good placement. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's probably that's probably a measure of it in terms of, like, um, I never, I never felt, I never felt fearful in, in, in the service, even when it wasn't at its best. And uh, I, I will admit that ten years ago, I didn't think it, the way the service was run was um, at its best. Now I think it's absolutely excellent. It's so um, service user centered. It's just incredibly well uh, organized, and it's it's just a fantastic approach and uh, and uh, i don't know whether that's part of new directions or or some policy prior to that but the the shift and you see it across all social care i mean you know institutionalized care is gone and it's more you know i heard about this thing recently about for for uh, i know this is unrelated now to addiction but um it was uh, dementia care and dementia villages there's only three of them in ireland and these villages are designed specifically with with the needs of dementia pa uh, dementia patients in mind any extreme colors are eliminated or everything is considered and they create they create a dementia village so it's like you know and i don't know how much awareness you'd have of the effects of dementia or your students might have but it's a social care area and you know the memory re retracts, you know, it's like you're rubbing out part of a person's memory over time and they can revert back to, they can revert back to a six month old baby or a two year old or a five year old or a, or, or a teenager. And, and what these villages try to do is create an environment that somebody of that age is comfortable with. They're just incredible. And that's part of being person centered. Yeah. And when we get it right, we get it so right. And when we get it wrong, we get it so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think, yeah, most social care areas are moving towards that person-centeredness. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you work with the person and you're person-centered, you won't go too far wrong. If you're Absolutely. Yeah. Where you're at, I think, you know, it's the most important thing. Yeah.
what would you say would be key skills or key um key skills I suppose yeah that the, the social care worker would need to work in the addiction field a great question I love that question <laughs> empathy, empathy is the first thing you must have empathy with the with the cohort that you're working with. You must you must have enough interest in 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 the work that you can empathise with the people that you're providing the service to. If you don't, and if you're getting into this area of work for money or to become rich, you you need a different career path. You really do because that's not that's not what this area is about. This this area is so satisfying when you work with people. And you have the right approach and you have the right attitudes and you have the right techniques and you have the right, you know, evidence-based operations. Um, it is so satisfying. It's so brilliant. But if you don't have the right attitude and if you don't have that empathy with the person that you're working with to support and help, then you're, 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 not, going to be, you're not going to be of any benefit to that person. And at the end of the day, that's what social care is about. I'm I, recently I was doing some training with um, people working in in uh, working with the elderly, home care, right? Part of that obviously is uh, personal care, right? And personal care is a difficult area. And I remember when I was I was uh, training this this group of people, and most of them were female. I don't know whether that's the the. the prevalence is that there's greater numbers of female working in that sector. I was just asked to deliver the training, so I did. And when we got to that section, a lot of people in the room which were new to the service area were very uncomfortable. Mm. And I stopped and I said, but look, you know, this is a basic fundamental element of this type of care, you know, and if you can't, if you can't embrace this as a professional, as a professional, because you have to be the professional person that realizes that this is part and parcel of the service you provide. And you come up with the methods and techniques and way of doing this that is effective for the person uh, that you're providing the service to and is least impact on you. And if you can't, if you can't, if you can't manage that yourself, if you're disgusted by the thoughts of this, you, you have no business being in this room, you know? And that professionalism, not, nobody left, nobody left. They were all interested in the techniques. What are the techniques? You know, a lot of it is simple as PPE, you know, uh, proper PPE, and which is very prevalent now and, you know, because of the COVID. But, you know, it's, you know if, you're, if you're a service provider in that area, that's part and parcel of what you do. It's like dealing with, um, in addiction services with, the odd chaotic person who you will encounter that has the, the effects of drugs. You're witnessing it, you're, but your job is to help that person in that state, not to judge them and not to say, well, you know, he's in such a state today, I can't, I can't help him and walk away and leave him in that. Your job is to help him on that day, in that state. And if you can't empathize with that, then you're, you're, you're in the wrong area, the service area again. Absolutely. I would imagine being able to build trust and maintain confidence would be quite important as well for the social care worker in the addiction field. Absolutely, I think in any field, you know, if you go in, if you go in with the attitude that, that that you're demanding respect, you're again wasting time. You've got to earn respect. You've got to earn respect by, you know, if you tell somebody something, uh, genuinely tell them 
that this is something that you're going to do or support them with or help them with and you're going to do it within a certain time frame if you don't do it you're going to you're not going to build that respect however if you do do it and if you're seen to be somebody that can be trusted and can be relied on and is genuine and is you know cares about the person that they're working with it is incredible the response you get absolutely incredible i worked with the traveling community about uh, about 12 years ago just for a brief period as well just to get the experience of working with people from the traveling community uh, from the outset if they don't if they don't like you if they don't trust you and they don't trust most people from the outside you know as they call them settled people you know but if they if they see that you actually genuinely care and respect their culture and how they want to live their lives and they and 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 they appreciate that you understand them and you empathize with them they're an incredible group of people as well absolutely incredible and yeah. you know the disciplinarians i wouldn't always agree with the approaches but the disciplinarians are the the older people you know this this guy is on our side this guy is one of us now so you do what you you know what what's expected of you that's the kind because i would have been working with uh, early school leavers you know yeah. so so they're they're you know they'd be going home to their parents or whatever and telling them about uh, situations that you know would arise from day to day and parents would come in and you know once they once they saw that you were on the right on the right track you know and you gained their trust it's, it's incredible so they're just really important skills for the for the social care worker to bring. Uh, I, I I think so. I think so. I think they're crucial skills. And would there be any other imparting words of wisdom that you would have for our social care students? Um, I just think working in social care is one of the most satisfying areas to work in. Um, yeah. I think I think it's highly dependent on the individual having the right um, attitude being thoroughly professional, wanting to grow and learn and evolve because it's constantly changing, it's constantly evolving. I work in quality assurance in education. I'm never satisfied. No matter how good the process is, I'm saying there's scope for further improvement. And if you have that attitude in social care, I don't think you can go wrong. Yeah. That's wonderful to finish up on Anthony, I want to thank you very, very much for... Good morning, Malcolm Nev, and I hope it's of use to you and your students. It absolutely will be. You've given some really good insights there for the students. Good. good. So thank you very, very much.